Wonderful. Well, think of Friday Night Lights with our high school ministry. Uh, maybe some of you know that last night our middle school ministry had a fall outreach event with over 300 middle school students here. Over 300 are signed up for a special abilities and high school combined uh, party that's going to be happening tonight. So it is just such a wonderful thing in a world that wants to write off the next generation as a lost cause to be a part of a church that says to the next generation, we see you, we love you, you're welcomed here, and we see you as part of the family of God. Amen? Cool thing to be a part of that. Um, and so if you have a Bible with you and want to grab that right now, Acts chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning, Acts chapter 20, uh, as we continue teaching through a series on where we believe God is leading our church over the next decade. We're calling this Calvary 2030, the vision of where Calvary, what we see our church becoming. Uh, and if you were here last week, you heard me make a statement that I'm going to continue to make this week. And that statement is simply this, that little phrases we learn shape how we live. Little phrases we learn shape how we live. Now, this is true for you, whether you are a Christian or not. Uh, like at some point along the way, you learn the phrase, don't judge a book by its cover, or, or an apple a day keeps the doctor away. You learn phrases like this, and no one ever taught them to you like you have to learn all these things. And yet you pick them up along the way, and they actually shape the way you live and think and relate to other people. Because little phrases we learn shape how we live. What we said last week, and we'll repeat again this week, is that there are six phrases, six phrases that the leadership of this church believes that if all of us would internalize, that our families would look different, our following of Jesus would look different, and our church would look different. Six phrases. Now, I'll remind you of these six phrases. They'll be on the screen. Last week, we talked about it's all about Jesus. We talked about God's people delight in God's word, and we talked about life change happening in relationship. This week, we'll cover the next three that say found people, find people. Save people, serve people, and grateful people are giving people. Again, little phrases we learn shape how we live. And so today we're going to look at the text. We're going to look at the story in the book of Acts. And we're going to see how those phrases play out in the life and the ministry of a local church. If you don't know the story of Acts, what you'll see very quickly here is that there is the Apostle Paul as the main character. The Apostle Paul was a Christian in the first century, and he planted churches and started communities of people who loved Jesus. He was this like prolific force in the early church. And he's with a church in a city called Ephesus, and he's about to leave Ephesus. He's been there for a season, and he's about to go to Jerusalem. But before he goes, he's going to call together all of the key leadership of the church. He's going to bring together the leaders of the church and give them a farewell speech. And that's the speech we're going to read this morning. Again, Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. It says, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time when I was with you. From the first day when I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. So Paul is going to summarize his ministry to the church of Ephesus with this sentence. And I've highlighted three things up there on the screen. I want to walk through each of them with you as we try to understand Paul's ministry. The first is the final words here. You'll see the words, my Jewish opponents. Now this is something you'll see throughout the New Testament, but we need to be clear. Because in a cultural climate and moment over the last few years where anti-Semitism has been on the rise, we need to be abundantly clear about what Paul is saying and what he's not saying, I just want to remind us from time to time that Jesus was Jewish, that Paul was Jewish, and that if you or anyone else has a problem with the Jewish people, you will have a problem with the God of the Bible who selected the Jewish people to be his chosen ones. That anti-Semitism 
goes right against the heart of God, that God loves the Jewish people, calls them his own, uses them to be a light to the nations, so that when Paul describes his Jewish opponents, they're not opponents of Paul because they're Jewish. Paul is Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. But there are these opponents who are also Jewish just like Paul is, and they're pushing back against Paul, not because of who they are, but because of what they believe about Jesus. Paul believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen king, the crucified and resurrected savior of the world. And there are people who are Jewish just like Paul is, who do not like that he is saying this. He is their, they're, they're his opponents. They're pushing back against him. So much so that you'll see he says that he is experiencing what he's calling severe testing, which is a season of suffering and struggle. It's difficult for Paul. This has not been an easy season. It's been a season of his life where he has been tested, where he has been pushed, where he has been challenged, where it's been overwhelming and stressful and difficult. And yet right in the midst of this season, let me show you again in verse 19 what Paul describes his activity was. He says, right in the midst of that season, I served the Lord. And I love this about Paul. And what Paul is modeling for us this morning is an important truth that we need to see and an important thing we need to internalize, and it's simply this, that it is always the right time to serve. It's always the right time to serve. And what can happen very quickly for followers of Jesus is we can get it into our mind that if I have time and if things aren't stressful and if life is going perfectly well, then I'll consider serving. But Paul has the exact opposite attitude here. For Paul, it's always the right time to serve. It's a stressful season. It's a difficult season. It's an overwhelming season. And yet Paul chooses to serve anyway. And again, I think Paul is teaching us something here about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That serving is not some kind of afterthought. It's not some sort of cherry on the top. It's not some sort of nice to have. It is absolutely essential for the follower of Jesus to be a person who serves I'll put it this way for all of us this morning, that your season of life may change the method of your service, but never the mandate to serve. Like as seasons change in your life and you go through different seasons, the method of how you serve might change, but the mandate never does. Like when I was in college, I served on a ministry each summer before my four years of college. And that ministry was a houseboat ministry out in the Sacramento River Delta. We'd take kids out on houseboats and teach them about Jesus and teach them to water ski. It was a wonderful season of my life. Now, I haven't been on a houseboat since 2009. So the method of how I serve has changed, but the mandate that I am called to serve has not changed. I think about my wife who, for many years, was deeply involved with our high school minister here at Calvary. She's one of the key leaders. She was at everything, all the events and the groups and the services we did. But then five years ago, we had our first baby. And that changed her ability to serve in our high school ministry. It changed her capacity to serve. And so she stopped serving in the way she did. But the mandate for her to serve didn't change. Her method changed. She had to do some things in different ways. But the mandate didn't. This goes for the young adult I work with who's in his 20s and he's single and doesn't have kids and doesn't even have a job. He has a bandwidth to serve in a certain kind of way, but the mandate doesn't change. I think of a single mom of three kids. She still has the mandate to serve. Her method just might look different than that single guy in his 20s. I think of a retired or empty nester and they have a mandate to serve and the method might look different than it did 10 or 20 years ago. My point is this, that all of us go through seasons in life 
And the temptation is to say, well, because of this season, I'm not going to serve when the mandate is always for us to serve. I think of people I've known um, all throughout my ministry career who step into ministry and they're excited about what God's doing and they're part of a ministry and then life gets stressful or it gets hard or their schedule or their job changes, something changes. And like I said with my wife, it's okay to step out of a ministry for a season. But sometimes I've seen that season turn into 5, 10, 15, 20 years where someone is no longer serving in any kind of role. They're no longer stepping into service. That little season ultimately became a lifestyle. And once again, I want to remind us that your season of life will change the method of how you serve. But it will not change the mandate that you have to serve. And here's why. Because we believe that the scriptures teach this truth. The first sentence, the first phrase we'll look at this morning. And that's this. That saved people serve people. The saved people serve people. We believe that if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, if I have been saved by Jesus Christ, serving is not some sort of optional side dish to us following Jesus, but right at the center of it. When we as a leadership look forward, we see a church, we see a church filled with disciples who utilize their spiritual gifts, abilities, passions, and experience to build up the church and to serve the world. Serving is something all of us are called to do. And I want to talk about the two ways serving happens in the context of our church. The first is this, we serve in spontaneous ways in the context of our lives. There are these spontaneous moments where we choose to serve simply because we are followers of Jesus. No one asks us to, no one expects us to, but we do it anyway. It would be like if you're walking out of this worship service on the way to your car and you see a piece of trash on the ground. Most people would walk by the piece of trash. Most people would say, I'm sure there's a facilities or maintenance team that's here, but not so for followers of Jesus. You know what we do? We stoop down and we pick up the trash and we throw it away ourselves. Why? Because saved people serve people. That the next time you're at a family gathering and the dinner's been eaten and everyone's going off to watch a game or, or to sit and chat in the living room, you head straight to the kitchen and you start doing dishes, even if they're not your dishes. Why? Because saved people serve people. We hold doors for people. We help people. We do things for people. We serve in these spontaneous ways. No one's asked us to, but we do it because we're followers of Jesus. The second way we serve is this. We serve in structured ways in the context of ministry. In the context of a ministry. That could be a ministry here with our church, a ministry in the community, a different ministry you're a part of. But a ministry that meets on a regular basis that has a role, an assignment, and a job for you to do. When we serve in the context of ministry, we submit ourselves to leadership. We work within the system and as a team toward a desired end for the building of the kingdom of God and the making of disciples. Again, the two ways we serve as saved people who serve people are in spontaneous ways in the context of our life and structured ways in the context of ministry. And what I want to challenge all of us to just take a gut check on this morning is this. Am I serving in both of those kinds of ways? Are there spontaneous moments throughout my day where I do things that no one asked of me simply because I'm a follower of Jesus? Or have I just started getting so into my own routine in my own life that I've not served in spontaneous ways? And the second question is, am I serving in structured ways? In the context of ministry, maybe for some of you, you used to serve in a context of a ministry, but you backed out and life got crazy, but a season has turned into a long, long time, and it's time for you to reconsider that. See, as we do this gut check this morning, the question I want each of us to ask before the Lord is this question. Is the Lord pleased with the ways I'm currently serving? That's a question for you and the Lord Jesus to wrestle with. I don't answer that question for you. The person sitting next to you can't answer that question for you. You and the Lord need to wrestle. And if the answer to that question is, yes, the Lord is pleased. I'm using my gifts and abilities. I'm serving the Lord in every way I can. Then praise God for that. Let's celebrate that. 
But if right now the answer to that question, you don't even need to go to the Lord in prayer. You know the answer is no. God's calling me into more. I want to encourage you to remember this morning that save people, serve people. And I want you to think deeply about how you can step into service in spontaneous ways in the context of your life or in structured ways in the context of ministry. Why? Because save people, serve people. In verse 20, it says, you know, Again, this is Paul speaking. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So once again, Paul models for us that in every season, the follower of Jesus is called to serve. But then he shows us something else he's passionate about. He's declaring to Jews and to Greeks, to anyone who will listen, that Jesus Christ died for their sins, rose from the dead for their salvation, and that they need to turn, they need to repent from their sin and throw themselves at the mercy of Christ. Paul is modeling for us this kind of intentional talking to people about Jesus. And what Paul is doing is a challenge to someone like me because of the kind of Christianity I grew up in. So, so as I was growing up, so the idea in Christian circles that I was a part of was simply this, is that I would do evangelism, what I now refer to as a passive kind of evangelism. And here's passive evangelism. Passive evangelism was the idea that what you're supposed to do is just live a really good life and follow after Jesus and avoid sin and do good deeds and be a different kind of person. And then throughout the course of your life, as you're just going along your merry way, people will ask you, what makes you so different? Why are you not like other people? And then once they ask you, and only once they ask you, are you permitted to open your mouth and talk about Jesus and tell them why? And here's what I want to affirm in that approach. It is absolutely right for us to walk the walk as much as we talk the talk, right? Like we should be those kinds of people who actually walk the kind of life that Jesus called. Our lives should look different and people should see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. But the problem with that approach in my life ended up being twofold. The first was this, I was walking after Jesus and following him, but people were not just randomly asking me the question. I wasn't getting asked all the time about Jesus. I wasn't getting asked all the time about my life. And then the second thing I recognized was this, it would seem to me that the only area of life where we decide we're not allowed to talk about something unless someone asks was Christian faith. Like you ever notice when someone starts like a new diet or a workout routine, that's all they want to talk about with you ever? Like just totally unprompted. You're just like eating. They're like, can I tell you how I eat? You're like, okay, here we go, right? It's just constant. Or have you noticed this is the perfect time of year to talk about this as you were driving into Calvary? Did you notice you saw about 1.4 trillion yard signs promoting politics? Right? Did you notice that? Like how many lawn signs there are everywhere and that no one else is going by the idea that we'll just sit and wait for people to ask us about our opinions on politics. It's like they're putting signs in their lawn. And then I think about those of us who are parents or grandparents, right? Like when I introduce myself to someone, I go, hi, my name is Brian Howard. Can I tell you about my three children, Grace, Noah, and Hope? Like I don't wait for them to ask. I just tell them why. We tell people we care about about what we care about. And so again, if I grew up with this sort of passive evangelism, what I see Paul modeling for us is something different. What Paul models for us is not a passive wait till they ask evangelism. It is a proactive evangelism that says, I'm going to tell people about Jesus. I'm going to intentionally and actively look for opportunities to tell people about the Lord Jesus. And why do we believe this is true? It brings us to our next statement. We believe this is true because found people find people. Found people find people. And, and so uh, what do we mean by that? Um, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have come to know and love and serve Jesus, I, I want you to know that you did not find God. 
Some people say they found Jesus or they found God. And I know what they're trying to say, but ultimately the good news of the gospel is not that you found God, it's that God found you. It's that you were wandering your own direction, you were going your own way, and God loved you enough to call you into relationship with him. You didn't find Jesus, Jesus found you. And so because Jesus finds you, you know what we do for other people? We help find them and introduce them to the one who can rescue and save them. We find people who do not know God's great love for them, and we introduce them to Jesus. Found people, find people. As a leadership, we see a church filled with disciples who are energized by the mission of introducing unsaved neighbors, family, colleagues, and friends to Jesus. Because found people, find people. And as we go forward as a church, I believe God is calling us to grow in this heart for evangelism this heart for the lost, this heart for people who are far from God. And now I talk about evangelism. I talk about sharing faith. And for so many, there just kind of becomes this tension. And maybe you're feeling that in your body right now. This like call toward evangelism just makes you nervous or or just like clam up because you think you're being called to something that makes you wildly uncomfortable. But let me just try to clear some of the misconceptions of what we're not talking about here. Sometimes this helps define what we are talking about. Uh, Let me talk about five things that effective evangelism does not require. Uh, I want to give you just five things that we're not calling you toward. When we say found people, find people, here's five things we don't mean. Number one, you do not have to preach. You don't have to preach. Uh, Often when we hear evangelism, we think i got to get a crowd around me, and and then i got to stand up on a platform and tell them about Jesus. And for some of you, that's your gifting and your calling, but for most of us, it's not. And so if you look up and go, well, that's nice for you, Pastor Brian or Pastor Sean or others, but that's not how I'm wired, that's okay. Evangelism does not require preaching. That's just one method. There's a million other ways. You do not have to preach. Number two, can I just for you, you don't have to approach strangers. Now listen, there who are incredibly effective street evangelists. They can just walk up to someone on the street and they can see them and they're smiling and someone walks up to them and says, I see you're smiling. You want to be smiling forever? Let me tell you how to meet Jesus. You can be with him for, like, can you just do that? Or they're the type of people who get into an elevator with someone and by the time it gets to the top, the person is saved, baptized, and part of the church, right? Like there are those people and they're remarkable, but that's not me and maybe that's not you and that's okay, You don't have to approach strangers. You know why? Because there are plenty of people in your life who are not strangers who don't know Jesus. And God has called you to be effective with those people. The people in your life, your colleagues, your friends, your neighbors, the people just around you. You don't have to approach strangers. Number three, you don't have to be rude or judgmental. Maybe some of you grew up with the evangelism style that basically says, your life is a mess, you're a terrible person, but listen to me and you'll be all better. And I just want you to know that's never worked ever, okay? Like, I'm going to judge you, look down on you, and tell you how terrible you are. But if you believe what I believe, then you'll be better. It just never actually works. Like, evangelism is a much more gracious and kind and truthful process than that. It's not rude or judgmental. Number four, you do not have to be an expert. I think this is one of the most misunderstood things about evangelism. That the great fear for so many when they share their faith is, what if they ask me a question I can't answer? What if they ask me about dinosaurs or free will or some crazy story in the Bible and I don't have a good answer for them? And here's the most freeing thing that Jesus said in Acts chapter one and verse eight. He said that you and I will be his witnesses. And I always love to think of the difference between an expert and a witness. Think about a trial. When an expert is put on the stand, they have to have the answers. They have to know the subject matter backwards and forwards and inside and out. They have to know all of the things. That's what the expert does. But not so for a witness. If a witness is asked a question, he simply or she simply says, here's what I saw. Here's what I heard. Here's what I experienced. 
And this is so freeing for the follower of Jesus. So many followers of Jesus think to do evangelism well or to talk to people about Jesus, I have to be an expert. You don't have to have all the answers. You can simply say, I don't have an answer to every question you're asking. I just know what Jesus has done in my life. He's changed me and he can change you too. You do not have to be an expert. And then the fifth and final one, I say this as much as I can just to free up about half of the room from a misconception. You do not have to be an extrovert. You don't. And for so many introverts, there's this like freedom because there's this thing that says like to do evangelism is just to be that extrovert, bubbly person who's meeting everyone and shaking every hand. And that's just overwhelming. Some of the most effective evangelists I know are introverts who just have these deep wells of meaningful conversation with people. And so again, what I want to clear out of your mind is this picture of evangelism that is just completely inaccessible to you and instead invites you to see it the way this text describes it. I want to show you verse 20 again for what we are talking about when it comes to evangelism. It says this, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and house to house. Two underlines there, publicly and house to house. How do we want to do evangelism going forward? How do we want to be found people who find people two ways, publicly and house to house? Publicly, here's what this means. Publicly is gospel proclamation in the gathered church. Every weekend when we gather here, we declare that Jesus is Lord, that he is the crucified and risen Savior. We declare the gospel here in this place in the gathered church. From every weekend on this stage, you'll hear us talk about Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead for our salvation. So how do we do evangelism in that context? We have a twofold role. The twofold role, our role in evangelism in the gathered church is invitation and hospitality. We invite people. Hey, why don't you come to church with me? Why don't you come to Christmas Eve service with me? Why don't you join me this weekend as I go to church? We'll go out to brunch after. It'll be a great time. It's invitation. I'm always shocked when I see surveys of how many Americans who don't go to church would go to church, but no one's ever asked them. And that just breaks my heart to know there are people who would. There's certain people who never will, and they'll always say no, and fair enough, God's going to work in their hearts. But our role is invitation, and when they get here, our role is hospitality. Because here's what I want you to know. There's a great population around you where if they showed up in this church, it would be terrifying for them. They would be uncomfortable. They wouldn't be sure what's going on. They'd be afraid they were going to do something wrong or be judged or say something wrong or stand or sit at the wrong time. There would be this fear that we're going to corner them and be like, tell us your deepest, darkest sins. You know, like that we're going to do that. Like if you've not been to church, it could be a frightening thing. And so hospitality is just having this welcoming spirit where you welcome people in, you help them understand what's happening, you give them freedom just to be who they are because that's what God's called us toward. See, the gathered church, we declare the gospel. Our job is invitation and hospitality. Why? Because we invite who we care about to join us in what we care about. This is true of every part of your life. We invite who we care about to join us in what we care about. And to illustrate that, I want to talk to you about a $61 billion industry in the United States of America. Every single year, Americans spend $61 billion, billions with a B, on the wedding industry. The wedding industry. On weddings and receptions. Now, now if you have gotten married or paid for a child or grandchild or someone's wedding, this will come as a great discouraging thought to you. But do you know there's actually no requirement to throw a massive party to have a wedding? You didn't have to do that. You can just get married. You can just do it. Like real quick, easy, move along, right? Like this can happen, and yet it's not what we do. We get everything together. We pay massive amounts, thousands or tens of thousands or millions of dollars, and then what do we do? We gather everyone we care about. Why? Because we invite who we care about to what we care about. 
And when you get a wedding invitation, the next time you get it, I just want you to recognize what happens in your heart. You don't get a wedding invitation to someone else's wedding who you know and you're like a friend and you get there a little save the date. You don't look at it and go, how dare they invite me to this? No, you're like honored because it matters to them, so it matters to you. And that's what evangelism is. It's us inviting who we care about into what we care about, inviting them to be a part of the gathered church. We said it was publicly, right? And then the second was house to house. If publicly is the gathered church, then house to house is gospel proclamation through the scattered church. It's when we leave and go in our cars to all the different cities and towns and neighborhoods we live in. As we go, we are the scattered church. And as the scattered church all throughout the week, our role is again twofold. It's curiosity and it's conversation. It's curiosity and it's conversation. It's having conversations about Jesus. It's talking about God and talking about Jesus as if he's actually real and present in our life because he is. It's asking questions and being actually curious. Again, the evangelism method we are proclaiming here is not you looking at people saying, I have all the answers. You have none of the answers. So sit down, listen to me, and I'll tell you what's true. Again, that is not evangelism. It's conversations. It's questions. You know my favorite question to ask people who don't, I don't, I don't even know what they believe about God. I just go, tell me your thoughts on God. You know what you'll realize very quickly? Everyone's got thoughts on God. Even people who are certain they don't believe in God have thoughts on God. And so it just stirs up this conversation and we're curious and we ask questions. Why? Because we tell who we care about about what we care about. People in our life that we care about, we tell them about the things we care about. And as followers of Jesus, if we want to care about who and what Jesus cared about, I'll bring you to Luke 19.10 where Jesus says this, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Who did Jesus care about most? He cared about people far from God who don't know the forgiveness God offers who don't know the love that is available to them. Why? Because found people find people. That's what we do as believers. So again, save people, serve people, found people, find people. And then I want you to see in verse 33, it says this, I have not coveted anyone's gold or silver or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied all of my own needs and the needs of my companion. In everything I did, I showed to you that by this kind of work, we must help the weak. So Paul is on his way out. It's his closing speech. It's his farewell speech. And the big thing he wants to make sure the church does, in addition to serving, in addition to evangelism, is this. He doesn't say you should, or maybe if you find time to, or you really ought to. He says you must do the following thing. You must help the weak. And what was true for the church in Ephesus is true for us here at Calvary Community Church, that we must help the weak. Now, in our time, in our culture, we might be uncomfortable with the idea of someone being weak. Strong and weak might just kind of rub us the wrong way, but the scriptures are going to use these words to describe the condition of humanity. This word weak here, I'll show you in the Greek language, the word weak is the word astheneho. Astheneho means to be weak or feeble, without strength or powerless. It's someone who doesn't have the power to control this world. It is someone who is feeble, someone who is without strength. And when I read and reflect on that definition of what it means to be weak, I very quickly recognize who the weak are. Like you ask the question, who are the weak? You start to realize this, that's me, that's you, that's all of us. That, that we are powerless, that we don't control this world, that we are feeble, that at times we don't have strength. And if you have convinced yourself that you're not weak, you're strong, you've got everything under control, all you have to do is just wait long enough and you'll get the call of the diagnosis. You'll have something happen in your family that you can't control. You'll have an estranged friend or family member that you can't seem to resolve the issue with. 
See, if you live long enough, what'll happen is you'll realize how powerless and weak all of us are. We ask the question, who are the weak? It's simple. The weak are the human beings living in a broken, sinful world. And Paul's burden for the church at Ephesus is that they would care for the weak. They would care for us in our sinful brokenness in this world. And that needs to be the same burden for our church here at Calvary, that we would be a people, that we would be a church that care for the weak. And if the weak are just broken, human, sinful people living in this world that are living under the curse of sin, then let me make it a little more specific for who we're talking about here at Calvary. Who are the weak here at Calvary? It's these folks. It's the children and students we serve in our family ministries. It's the people affected by disabilities who we welcome in our special abilities ministry. It's the lonely people who find community in our small groups ministry. It's the discouraged individuals who find strength in our worship services. It's the grieving families who find healing through our care ministries. They're the hurting and desperate who are prayed for by our prayer groups. They're the men and women who find encouragement in our adult ministries. They're the hungry families who receive help through our outreach ministries. They're the widows and shut-ins who receive comfort from our seasoned adult ministries. They're the families in crisis who receive funds from our benevolence fund. And they are the global poor and marginalized who find hope through our missions partners. Again, Paul doesn't say you should or you might want to, but he says you must help the weak. And as a church, we have decided that we must embrace this mission to help people, human beings, live in a broken and a sinful world. And the question I want us to ponder this morning is this question. If you've never thought deeply about this, how does our church care for the weak at a large scale? Because here at Calvary, we're not talking about a handful of people. We're talking about hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people who Calvary is helping through the ministries. And how does this happen? In three ways. We pray. Like nothing good happens through this church without us praying and God's power working through us. We serve. Like we don't just like hope things get better. We actually step into people's lives and we serve and we help in any way we can. And then finally, God's people give. We give generously. And that as we give generously, God moves through this church and God allows us, empowers us as a church, as a body, a group of people called Calvary to help the weak, to help human beings living in a broken and a sinful world. Listen to me, when it comes to giving, we need to understand that giving is a gospel issue. Giving is right at the heart of what it means to believe in Jesus. I'll say it this way, that we give something to help the weak because God gave everything to us when we were at our weakest. Like the actual story of the gospel is encapsulated in this idea that at our weakest, God gave everything. That Romans 5.8 says this, that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were at our weakest, while we were at our lowest point, our darkest point, while we were the farthest we could possibly be away from God, Christ died for us. Giving is a gospel issue. That right at the center of the gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only son. This is a gospel issue. And so for us, that's why we bring up this final phrase this morning. That we believe that grateful people are giving people. When we understand the gospel and what God has done on our behalf, we did nothing to earn our salvation and yet God saves us anyway. When we understand that, we become giving people. Grateful people are giving people. We believe this. We see a church filled with people who give regularly proportionately, generously, and cheerfully to the work of the Lord through our church. Now, here's what I know. Um, I've been in church world long enough to know that when I talk about giving, um, like temperatures rise in the room. Maybe that's happening for you right now. Maybe there's something in you that doesn't want the church to talk about money. Maybe there's something in you that's resistant to that, and I fully understand. Because churches, and maybe even us, or maybe a church you've been part of, have fumbled the ball on this and maybe done it poorly. 
And so the temptation even for church leadership is let's not talk about money. Let's just kind of keep it over in the corner. But here's what I'm convinced of, that a church that will not teach on money is a church that will not make disciples of Jesus. Because for Jesus, money was not some sort of other thing, not some sort of secondary thing to think about. For Jesus, money was right at the core of what it means to trust God. For Jesus, this wasn't some other thing. It was part of your discipleship. See, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says something shocking. He says these words. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. And isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't say you cannot serve both God and the devil? He didn't say you can't serve both God and Satan. He said you cannot serve God and money. Like the great competitor for God for your heart is not Satan. It is your money and your possessions. It is my money and my possessions. That's what's going to call out to me more than God. Jesus says this because he understands that to trust in God and to follow him, to be made in the likeness of the Son, is to be someone who honors him with your money. Now for so many of you, you give regularly to Calvary. You give cheerfully and generously. For some of you, it's just like this amazing like, lifestyle where you're just generous, not only here at Calvary, but to ministries, to the poor, to global missions. You just want to give, and it is so joyful for you. And I want to say two things to you if that's you. I want to encourage you and just say thank you for your generosity that allows us to do the ministry that God's moving through here. But I also just want to encourage you to keep leaning in because as you do, you're becoming more like Jesus. Like this is part of your discipleship. It's not just like a check you write. It is a way God is making you more into the image and likeness of the Son. So that's for those of you who give. But then let me just speak to you, those of you in case there's anyone here who just doesn't give. That's not a part of your routine. It's not a part of your discipleship. And again, listen, I know that it can just make your temperature rise, your blood pressure go up. I know what this can do. And yet what I want to call you toward this morning is to consider that money, giving, is a central part of what it means for us to follow Jesus. And what I want to invite you toward is just a simple first step toward that. I want to give you three, three phrases. Three phrases that I give to people when they reach the point where they go, you know what, okay, I get it. It's part of my life. I can't afford to give a lot right now. What do I do? And here's my three phrases I want to give to you this morning. If God's moving in your heart in this way, number one, start now. Start now. The great lie we believe when it comes to generosity is that I will give when blank. I'll give when I get older and have a real job. I'll give when my salary goes up a little or when I get that promotion. I'll give when the kids are out of school or I'll give when the business is doing a little better. I'll give when inflation goes down just a touch. Start now. When we follow after Jesus, there is always a value in listening and obeying all the way and right away. And if the Holy Spirit of God is moving in your life, I want you to start now. Start now. And then number two, start small. Start small. Like author uh, James Clear says it this way. He talks about habits must be established before they're improved. Habits must be established, disciplines, spiritual disciplines must be established before they're improved. And so it would be like this. If you told me that next summer you were going to go run a marathon and you've never really done any running before, but you were doing a marathon and you came to me for some weird reason and said, would you train me on how to run a marathon? The last thing I would tell you to do is say, okay, Monday morning, tomorrow morning, I need you to wake up at 4 a.m. and I need you to go run a marathon. I wouldn't tell you to do that because it would destroy your legs. It would destroy your body. You're not at all ready to do that. I would say like walk one mile and then the next day walk two miles and then the next day maybe try jogging one of the miles, right? You would slowly build into this. And if you are not someone who gives regularly to any church, anywhere at all, I want to encourage you to start small. You know what for years I've said to high school and young adult students? I've said start giving. If you're not giving at all, Start giving automatically to this church or any church. If you're part of another church, go give there. But start giving $1 a week. $1 a week, $52 a year. 
And I say this, and from time to time, people are like, 52 bucks a year, is that really gonna help the church? And the answer is, God's gonna use every little thing, but the real person that's gonna help is you. Because you start building that muscle of giving. You start giving that little amount. And if a bucket, if 52 bucks a year is too much, make it a nickel a week, okay? Because the idea is you start to get into the rhythm and the pattern, the routine of building giving and generosity into your life. You start now, you start small, and then here's what I say, you set a new floor. So if you're going to do a dollar a week, if you're going to do a small amount, you have a floor. And then what I want to challenge you to do is just to raise that floor every single year for the rest of your life. About seven years ago, my wife and I made a decision that we were going to give away more money every year for the rest of our life. And if somehow our finances collapse or I lose my job or everything goes away, then we'll start a new floor and we'll start over. But so far, we've been able to do that. And that's just what we want for our life. Isn't that what you want for your life? To at the end of it all have someone say he or she or that family became more generous every year for the rest of their life. Every single year they were alive on this planet, they became more generous. And that's the call for all of us. So if we are giving to just say, okay, how can we just become more generous to what God is doing in this world? And if we aren't, start now, start small, set a new floor, lean in in small ways and watch what God does as he starts to change you from the inside out. Why? We give because grateful people are giving people and we believe that we are never more like Jesus than when we are giving. Jesus himself gives a summary of his life and in that summary of his life, he says that the son of man came not to be served but to serve and then he said this, and then to give his life as a ransom for many. That Jesus understood that central to his mandate and his mission and ministry in this world was giving. It cost him. And so when we walk in the pattern of Jesus, we do something that costs us. I want to call you to wrestle before the Lord. I want to call you to wrestle as a family to believe that grateful people are giving people. It says this in verse 35. It says, remembering of the Lord Jesus himself who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive Like I love these words of Jesus where he says, I want you to remember that it's actually more blessed when you give. So this morning we talked about serving, we talked about evangelism, we talked about giving. All of these things are things that happen outside of myself where I'm getting outside of me and my priorities and myself. And what Paul is trying to tell us is remember every time you do that, every time you serve, every time you give, every time you share the gospel, that it is more blessed for you to be someone who is giving than receiving then in some strange and mysterious way, God's blessing is upon your life as you give, as you serve, as you share the gospel. And then in verse 36, it says, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They wept aloud and embraced him and they kissed him. And what grieved them most was the statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. He prays with them and then Paul is heading toward the ship. He is leaving Ephesus and he is heading toward Jerusalem. And why is he heading toward Jerusalem? Because God told him to go to Jerusalem. Why are they weeping? Because God told them you're gonna go to Jerusalem. You're gonna get in prison, probably beaten, maybe killed. It's not gonna go well for you. But Paul decides to go to Jerusalem anyway. Why? If he knows it's gonna be hard, if he knows it's not gonna be easy, if he knows this is gonna be difficult, why does Paul go to Jerusalem? Because Paul understands the two-step formula for spiritual growth. If you'll remember this from last week, we listen to God and we do what he says. We listen to God and we do what he says. God says to Paul, go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, where am I going? I'm going to Jerusalem. Why? We listen to God and we do what he says. So as we wrap up this sermon, I want to ask the question that we should be asking after every church service, every small group, every Bible study, every time we're alone with the Lord. This is the question we should ask this morning. What next step of obedience is God calling me to take today? 
What's the Holy Spirit stirring up in my heart? What ways am I being convicted and comforted? What things is God calling me to step into this morning? As I've been talking, what are the things that you just sense, you know, that's it. I need to do that. I need to step into that. I need to consider that deeply. And this morning, I want to ask that question. I want to give you a very specific way of trying to answer that question for yourself. I'll ask you to do something, and it won't get too crazy. We've done this before, even in the service this morning. I want to ask you to take out your phone. Now, I know about a quarter of you are on it already, checking scores, getting your fantasy lineup. I'm, I'm not mad. I'm not mad. Um, but if you take your phone and you just scan that little QR code that we've asked you to scan before, just open your camera, scan it down at that, you click a little box, and what will happen is this will pop up on your phone. And this is the QR code landing page. What you'll immediately see there if you scan that code is a little box on the top that says next step card. And right there on your phone, this is what will pop up when you click that little box, this little next step card that will give you options to consider of what God might be calling you toward in you following Jesus. Maybe you need to get baptized. Maybe you've not been reading the word and it's time for you to start reading the word of God regularly. Maybe you've not been serving and it's time and you want to serve in our children's ministry or serve with our outreach ministries. You click one of those boxes and what will happen, that will get sent into our team. We'll reach out to you with resources. If you say, I want to read the Bible, we'll send you a Bible reading plan. If you say, I want to serve with our outreach ministries, we'll let you know how to do that. So we'll reach out to you and let you know. I want to encourage all of us to just at least look at that. And maybe there's nothing on that list that God is calling you to do this morning. But if there is, I want to encourage you this morning before you leave your seat to fill out that card, to submit that card, and then to tell the Lord, just work before him and say, God, I want to take that next step of obedience. I want to listen to God and I want to do what he says. So again, that QR code, you can scan it anytime before you leave the service this morning. And what's going to happen now is our band's going to come out uh, and they're going to lead us in one final song. We'll ask you to remain seated just so people have a moment just to flip through that. So you're even on your phones during the song, just kind of going through that little list going, okay, God, what might you be calling me toward? And if there is something, you fill that out, you submit it, it'll take you 60 seconds or less. And that is an opportunity for you to say to God, I've heard what you've said, and now I'm going to do what you've said. I want to encourage all of us to be the type of people who learn these little phrases that shape how we live and then listen to God and do what he says. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning and thank you for your church here at Calvary. Thank you that you're on the move and that your spirit is speaking to each of our hearts and souls and minds today. God, I pray that each of us would be receptive to what your spirit has to say. I pray against hardness of heart or just resistance to your Holy Spirit. And God, for those who are just walking in faithfulness and are just like oh, thriving in the Lord. God, may you continue to let that be the case in their life. May they continue to be formed into the image and the likeness of your son. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your church here at Calvary and what you're doing in and through our midst. God, may we be aware of it. May we celebrate it. And may we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of all of it, that we might experience his love and his presence now and forevermore. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right. Very good. All right, well, as we close out, I mentioned we're going to do one final song. And then also on that QR code, uh, there's an opportunity for you to give to our regular and weekly offering here at Calvary because grateful people are giving people. And so I want to invite you to do that right where you sit. Again, we'll stay seated. And then the last thing I want you to know here, a little bit of family business, because some, some inside talk here for Calvary. Um, we are transitioning on our online giving platform. We are upgrading that platform to make it easier to give, easier to track that giving, and as always, secure and private as always. 
these uh, so that we can have a good tool for us going forward um, into what we have next. And so that information has been emailed to some of you this week. You can check out that email that is from us. You'll hear more, hear, you'll hear more about that in the coming weeks, but wanted to make you aware of that as we are a people who lean in together as a grateful people who are giving people. Once again, would you stay seated where you are as we worship together? The worship leaders will ask you to stand in a moment, but before you do, encourage you to give, encourage you to look at that next step card and ask God, what do you want me to do next? <laughs>